Welcome to The Political Nomad. I'm your host, Josh Gillespie. With me this week is my guest, Holly Davis. I've known Holly for almost 15 years. Holly knew me as I was really starting to stake my claim in Indiana politics. She has been a powerhouse and a dynamo in her own right. She has served as the executive director of the Center for Women and Democracy, the Indiana Leadership Forum, which is where I really got to know her, and the Richard G. Luger Excellence in Public Service series. She's even run for state representative and was recognized by Governor Mitch Daniels as a distinguished Hoosier in 2010. She's earned her BA in political science and history from Indiana University in Bloomington and is a 2000 alumna of the Women's Campaign School at Yale University. She's also crisscrossed this country, literally, working in order, mind you, in Indianapolis, Washington, D.C., Seattle, Washington, Austin, Texas, and now she's back in Indianapolis. During that time, I have seen a change in Holly. You know, the way you see a change in people who you can't see face-to-face via social media. Holly has always been a strong advocate for women's rights, especially championing them in a male-dominated political climate in Indiana. But as a mother of three daughters, I have seen her compassion for many considered downtrodden grow over the years, often questioning what she considered her own party stance on certain issues. But first and foremost, she has been a strong and vocal advocate for women. I consider Holly a friend, and I'm glad she is on my show. Please welcome Holly Davis. Thanks, Holly, Josh. thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so thank you again for, for being on the show this week. Um, you know, I think I want to start off with you trying to get a bit of your background. You know, where where did Holly Davis come from? You know, what formed your initial political leanings? You know, who made you what you were so long ago? Alex P. Keaton. Mm-hmm. So Gen Xers will understand, but the character of Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties was the bomb back in the day. It was the height of Reaganism, and Alex embodied all of it and always had the funniest lines on that show. So I have to say it was pretty, it was pretty influential on me. I know that sounds really silly. Um, my parents were not particularly political. I mean, they voted consistently, but we really didn't have conversations around the dinner table. Certainly not like we have in my household. Um, and so a lot of my political leanings kind of came from outside sources. And as a latchkey kid of the 80s, TV was our third parent. And, um, you know, I bought into all of it. The idea of picking up you know, yourself by your bootstraps, the people who leached off the welfare system, you know, abortion by means of birth control. I bought all of the lines, it, mm. you know, Reagan made so much sense to me. Like, of course, if you want to, you know, you'll work hard, you'll get ahead. Those were very simple um, taglines that, you know, to a young kid that, you know, that makes perfect sense. It's very black and white. It was, you know, I remember watching the same show. I mentioned in my first episode that Alex B. Keaton had an influence on me. And I, I think I may, I, I'm at the tail end of Gen X. I still, I still stake my claim in Gen X, even though my wife, who is not Gen X, she's only uh, about six months younger than me. I still <laughs> heartily claim Gen X. But the thing is, is that I, I know exactly what you're talking about. You grew up watching those shows in the '80s, and they made you feel safe. They made you yeah. think that the country was going in the right direction. That. You know, Alex P. Keaton was fighting against all the people who were bringing you down, you know. And even though he had some sweet moments with his family, you know, I, I remember one specific episode where he put a giant placard of bush quail over his family's uh, fireplace. <laughs> and yeah. his, his parents 
flipping out. And I just thought it was great. And I remember watching that show with my parents, who, you know, like yours, weren't super political, but they were voters. Um, they had their conservative leanings. Uh, and that definitely had an influence on me. And yeah, but it's, you grew up with the, the safety of television. And the television told you that, yeah, Reaganism is pretty daggone good. Sure. Family values, all of that stuff was embodied through a lot of the shows that wove our childhood. You know, I mean, now we don't talk as much about, you know, the Cosby, you know, Cosby show or family, um, not family ties, but was it Growing Pains? I mean, they have the strong two-parent family, that family unit, and all that comes kind of through that. And, you know, it was a very strong foundation in a lot of that stuff. And again, very black and white. And in a half an hour, you solved your problem and you know, you, you felt your consequence and you moved on. And, you know, it was, it was very formative, but also coming of age. Um, so I am full disclosure, I'm a corporate brat. So what that <laughs> means is it's a lot like being a military brat, but usually better housing in private school. So <laughs> I grew up all over the country. Um, you know, you think I've crisscrossed as an adult, but I actually, I'm the rare unicorn that um, I'm from Orlando, Florida. So um, oh. if you can point to another person you know that actually started their life in Orlando, um, I would be impressed because I've never met one in the wild. Um, but from there, you know, California, we moved, you know, Colorado, uh, Missouri, North Carolina. I mean, I, you know, that was my childhood as my father climbed the corporate ladder um, growing up. And so getting to experience at a young age you know, living in all these different places and all that, you know, there was a lot of material there to kind of, you know, see how people lived and form opinions and things like that. But kind of coming in of age in Indiana with its slightly more conservative bent, um, for me at least, it, it kind of just made sense. Opportunities existed in the Republican Party um, as I started to decide what I wanted to do with my career path. Um, and mm -hmm. so, I mean, not. I'd love to say there was a ton of thought process that was put into the initial decisions, but really it came down to um, there were more openings when I applied for the Senate Republican internship. So I thought I'd have a better chance there. Um, well, which is funny. After that, you know, <laughs> you just keep going. That, well, that's, that's so funny to think about. Now, you know, I'm gonna guess that maybe early on, uh, most of my listeners may be from Indiana, so they may may have an idea that Indiana's Senate history is that it's been pretty much Republican the whole time. Right. Um, but you can't always say that there have always been pathways for women within the GOP. You happen to to kind of really, you know, make it be a, a bit of a trailblazer, a young trailblazer. Um, for, for women in the GOP. Now, there were some. That's not to say that there weren't. And that we, Indiana definitely had its own trailblazers players in a sense. Yeah. yeah, but there were few. Um, what was that like, especially starting out as an intern in the Indiana Senate? It was, it was weird, actually. I'm glad you asked that, because I think it's difficult to appreciate now, 20 years later, that just 20 years ago, how lonely it was in the Republican Party. The Democrats were more fun. They had a little bit more diversity, you know, kind of early on. And I have lovely Democrat women friends who will say they had their own challenges within their party. But in the Republican Party, 
in Indiana, at least for an operative, it was a lonely world. I can think of two other women who were really at the level that I was. And, you know, there's things that come with that. There's, you know, some of them, you know, don't get married. Some of them get married, but don't have kids, Um, things like that to achieve what I did, being able to get married, being able to have kids um, and still forge a pretty interesting career was the anomaly. It was not uh, typical. And I can't tell you how many meetings I went to where not only was I the youngest person in the room, I'm the only female and, uh, you know, I'm the shortest always. So, <laughs> you know, uh, some of some of this uh, personality kind of is born out of the necessity to make my space bigger because I physically am not uh, large. So your personality has to kind of grow with you. But um, yeah, no, it's it, it was lonely. And to be taken seriously, I mean, it's amazing how you remember moments in time where someone took you seriously, because most everyone didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have the sort of additional layer of, I started a lot of this journey um, in tandem with my husband, um, who I met while doing that internship at the Senate. Um, And so most people have always known us together. In -hmm. fact, um, sometimes that can be difficult for him because I am mouthy, that they think when I'm talking, (laughs) I'm representing him. And conversely, Uh if you're talking to him, you know, we're seen as a unit, um, which can have its, I think early in my career, I think that benefited a lot. I think as we got older, you know, it's not always, he's an independent person with his own thoughts. So, and as am I. Um, and so it, it can be interesting, but being a, um, a political operative, you know, just 20 years ago, even heck, even 10 years ago, it was still pretty lonely. So how did you make your make your way through that? How did you basically uh, get to where you were having to come from such a lower position, essentially, from your male colleagues? Um, what? What real? What was your driver? I mean, how, how, what steps did you take to make your place known in the world outside of your very outsized personality? Because I mean, I, <laughs> I, I know you, and yes, you make up for what you lack in height. You make up for in personality. Right. I think I I did have I feel like little angels sort of looking out for me in some respects um, mm-hmm. because I think and I had the moxie at a young age to not know exactly what the parameters were and so to go for it. I will tell you that um, coming off of my internship experience in the Senate, I was hired um, and given a great opportunity um, to go and be the director of the Luger series. Mm -hmm. And um, when, you know, campaigns started coming around, this is now 1998, um, the House Republican Campaign Committee came to me and asked if I would run their top tier challenger race. Wow. So I had a pick of races. And the interesting thing, though, is that even though they wanted me and I got the pick of the races, they came to me with the job offer and they said, um, we, you know, gosh, times are tough. We got to put all of our resources in. We can only pay you 1400 a month, which don't laugh. Remember, this was 20 something years ago. And yeah. when you're talking about a five month job, you don't get paid that much. But even still, I thought, well, that is a lot less than even what campaign managers had made, the, you know, two years previously. And I'm kind of like, you know, look, you guys came to me. If you want me, I want $2,000 a month. And mm-hmm. they, they met my price. But here's the kicker. 
I was the only woman campaign manager they hired that year. And I remember being in a meeting with one of my counterparts and he said offhandedly, he goes, man, the things they make you do for 1700 a month. And I thought, you guys suck because clearly they had offered me even less than what my male counterparts were making. And yet they had the largest load. And it is a very good thing that I had negotiated and I pushed back. I knew my worth early on. And I said, look, it's not worth it to me to do it for less than like, this is what it's going to take to get me. If you want me, you know, here's where it is. Most people don't have that kind of moxie at 22 years old. No, <laughs> that but, but, you know, if you don't know where the, you know, I think there's some of that. You just keep kind of going. And I credit some of that to, you know, I went to a private prep school where they really instilled in us that we were the leaders of the community. We were people of privilege and we needed to, you know, assume our leadership positions in society. And I don't mean that in a callous way. I mean that in a, like we had more advantages and therefore more was expected of us. So I think that played into it as well that, you know, I I have something to contribute here. So you're gonna have to pay for that. So you, you knew your value early on and you were going to stick to that value. Yes. How hard is that to establish a, as a young woman? I mean, to, to really stick up for that because I, I'm a 42 year old guy, 41. I don't want to age myself too quickly. Uh, a 41 year old guy who, you know, when you see questions like, like for instance, if you're looking for a job and it asks you, how much do you think you should make? with the fluctuations that keep on going on through one's career, you're like, should I put down now? You know, I sometimes feel like I don't even know my own value. So how how important was it for you to establish your own value and keep pressing forward on that? I think I'm just, I'm incredibly competitive. And I think honestly, I have to give a lot of credit to my husband um, because I'm, I'm particularly competitive with him. Um, and so, um, on one of our first dates, um, he said, I've got this young Republican thing. I'm going to be inducted state treasurer, you know, like, do you want to come and see it? And I was like, yeah, I do. And I remember watching as he was inducted and I thought I can do that. And just a few (laughs) years later, I was elected state chair. Like, I mean, I have spent the last 25 years. I'm probably the most obnoxious wife trying to up my husband, uh, because he sets the bar so high. But in terms of knowing your worth, I think I got, at least in that initial example that I just gave a minute ago, I, like I said, the little angels sort of looking out for me, I knew because my husband had been a campaign manager, you know, the cycle before, I knew how much he had made. So I knew the jumping off point. I think it's very difficult if you don't know the jumping off point. Um, And I do think there's a difficulty. I know many stories of women in politics or quasi-politics who, you know, they don't have a real good sense um, of what the market is for some of this stuff because you can't always go look at the 990s or find out, yeah. you know, what your previous person was paid. I think we do ourselves a disservice by not sharing. I know in this country, we don't like to talk about money. We don't want to, you know, do that. But I think that doesn't necessarily benefit us. That benefits those who pay us. Um, and I think that's how we've been able to go this long with such a wide pay gap um, because, you know, you're taught not to talk about that stuff. 
And, um, but the moment you start talking about it, you go, Hey, wait, what? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I have yeah. A, a girlfriend of mine who found out um, quite accidentally that her male counterpart who had the same level as she and the same education and similar background made twice what she made. Whoa. Um, that's, you know, amazing. Um, that's ridiculous. I, yeah. And sometimes women are not our best friends. I hate saying that because I've dedicated so much of my life to uh, causes for women, but um, I think it, it really depends. There's a great sense now as we come through of looking out for each other, but um, you know, the women just a little bit older than me, there was very much a sense of, I had to fight my way here and you've got to figure it out and mm -hmm. I'm not bringing you with me. And um, you know, uh, my early mentors, a lot of them were men. Um, I do credit some amazing women. The women that started the Luger series were incredibly helpful to me, but not much beyond that. And um, mm. it was actually a lot of times um, some of the more senior men in politics in, in the city of Indianapolis who gave me some of my biggest shots. Um, and I think they responded to hard work and, you know, kind of that moxie. And, and you know, I've yeah. even had a man say to me, like, it could be neat to have a chicken here. Um, which, <laughs> You know, which I was like, well, that benefits me. So, okay. Um, All right then. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm cognizant of it now to make sure that I'm looking behind me and I'm trying sure. to bring people along. I'm, I'm definitely a girl's girl and which isn't to say I'm anti-men in any way. It's just to say that um, there are additional barriers that we face and if we can help sort of, you know, say, hey, I have a map. Like, yes, I, I got through and maybe I achieved something, but here, let me show you what it is I did so that we don't all have to create our own wheels. You know, mm -hmm. why not? You know? Well, let's fast forward a bit here to 2007, 2008. Um, I get to know you, you're running the Indiana Leadership Forum. I'm going to guess that from 98, in, in those nine years, nine to 10 years, uh, there may have been some even some slight ideological shifts over time. Goodness knows there was a lot going in America at the time. Um, but I would say that, and the reason I bring this up is because when I was in the Indiana Leadership Forum as a student, I noticed that there was a clear distinction between um, a kind of a centrist politics and a right of center politics. Um, and that you tried to ride that line because you had so many people to appease because the 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 forum was located in Indianapolis where you probably have more centrist republicans located in the in the metro area but you had to pull people from all over the state and you did a really good job at doing that um to be a part of this class and so you had to balance some of the some of the topics kind of like almost on a rail a bit because I remember especially when we were talking about um, I forget what the, the issues were specifically but you had one guest speaker who was um, I want to say she was openly gay but then followed up right next to her was the guy who ran Indiana Right for Life right I, you, you did your best to expose the the group to multiple points of view. And was that purposeful? Yes. Oh gosh, yes. 
I always feel like, you know, I know exactly what you are referring to because of course in, in that time, um, gay marriage was not. It's funny now to think that um, there was a time very not long ago mm -hmm. where we were debating these issues um, and hotly debating them. Um, mm -hmm. But I think if you extrapolate even to something as I'm gonna say mundane, and for those who are just listening to this, they can't see my bunny ears around that word, but um, <laughs> as let's say education, you will note that I would have brought in probably the State Chamber of Commerce. I would have brought in somebody from the Department of Education. I would have brought in the Teachers Union. Um, I'm Who knows, I probably brought in somebody else, maybe somebody around Ed Choice. Um, because to me, I, I'm not there to indoctrinate you. Um, mm -hmm. I assume people are intelligent and that you are the product of your experiences. So if I present to you, to the best of my ability, a 360 on an issue, then you are going to use your intelligence and your experience to come to the conclusion that's correct for you. I mm -hmm. think in some respects, it's that lack of respect for our fellow man that has led us to the times that we're in. Because if you think about you know, our friends on the left, they assume Trumpers are idiots. Um, and if, you know, and our friends on the right assume that the liberal elites, you know, are, they just don't know and they're out of touch. Well, if we're always assuming that our, you know, the people we're talking to, you know, are, are stupid, you're probably not going to get that far with them. <laughs> you know, right? if you come exactly. place of, like, hey, you know, there's a reason you think the way that you do, help me to understand that perspective. You're going to get a completely different interaction. And uh, probably one of the, the, a friend of, a mutual friend of ours one time said to me, um, and it's probably the, the, the greatest compliment I may ever get, is he goes, I've really noticed that you're probably the only, you know, one of the only people I've ever known who can actually change their mind. Um, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. mean I don't have core principles or things like that, but I always, I don't assume I'm the smartest person in the room. I always assume there is something I don't know. I like to leave a back door um, is how I describe it. There's a back door of, there's a possibility that there's something I haven't considered mm -hmm. and that could change everything. And so if you go and approach life that way, you know, yeah, I have my personal beliefs, but there's also a lot of stuff I don't know. Um, yeah. And, you know, so you always have to kind of, you know, and there's a lot of stuff that there's a reason you think the way you do. So why would I assume my way is better? Um, yeah. I guess we'll die and we'll all find out, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. Well, so that leads me to this. Like, when did you start noticing a change in yourself in the way that you approached issues, the way that you um, approached politics, uh, I know that you're still very much actively involved. I've seen, you know, your social media posts. You're still going out to Washington. You're still visiting members of Congress, um, right. but you are not overtly political with your posts. Like you're not trumpeting a party like you used to. Right. Yeah. I would say. I. I would say. Um, I would not have necessarily considered myself conservative. Mm -hmm. I think I was more of a, you know, Teddy Roosevelt kind of 
Republican. <laughs> you a pragmatic know. Republican, yeah. No. Exactly. So, um, you know, I've always, um, I have a bit of a science background. Um, before I decided to, to divert into politics, I actually was a biology major. Uh, for most, actually, the majority of my college career, I, it was only at the end that I, you know, dived off. But um, so I have a That's great the beauty of political science. Yeah, it's, it's strangely, <laughs> political science is not practical in any way. But um, no, it's not. You know, kids <laughs> I'm raising home, my hand as a go, fellow poli sci major. Go get something. Yeah, go get a real degree. Um, your parents were correct. But um, there's, you know, I always had a great appreciation for the environment. I always. Um, you know, I think I was very moderate. I mean, people forget in, in the state of Indiana, at least, when we kind of came of age and started getting involved in politics, this was a very moderate state. Uh, when I started my internship in the state Senate, um, two days later, we were inaugurating um, Frank O'Bannon, who's a Democrat, as governor. And the House had a House, you know, the, the Democrats had the House at the time. It was not that long ago. People assume Indiana is so red and all of this. It was not that long ago that it was pretty mixed up. And you had people like Evan Bayh, who's a very, you know, more moderate centrist Democrat, who was U.S. Senator and things like that. Um, and so... I don't know where I was going with this, but um, <laughs> for myself personally, I wasn't so far on one side um, yeah. that it was that different. I sometimes maintain that I don't know how much I changed. I feel like the world changed around me. And I think that that's something consistent with political nomads as you describe us, you know, that I, I don't know, I did change. I, I can't say that I didn't, but fundamentally, I, it's not like I was some, you know, wackadoodle right of the boat you know, right winger, yeah. um, and yeah. now I'm some left of the boat, you know, leftist, you know, I, I'm still kind of in the middle. I just sort of, you know, I, I changed some affiliations a little bit. Um, and I think around the time that you would have gone through the Indiana Leadership Forum, shortly after that, um, I stepped out, I ran, put my name on the ballot after years of training people uh, to run for state rep. And there were things um, through that process, even though I didn't do it for very long, um, I reached out the district that I would have represented had the highest concentration of um, you know, gay people in the state of Indiana. I thought it was very right. important that I go find that out. That was not part of my personal experience. And so I reached out to um, some folks in that community to educate me. And I really much approached it like, tell me, you know, what are some things I need to know? And, you know, and then I kind of, you know, through that research sort of realized, oh, wow, there's a lot here to look at. Um, you know, these people don't have like basic rights. They could be fired tomorrow. They have to yeah. live in the closet. Like, why are we doing this to each other? Um, you know, that's just one example. I think as I lived a little longer, um, abortion is another issue for me. I would have staunchly, you know, I was pro-life, um, absolutely. And then as I lived life a little bit more and I saw a few more things, I thought, oh, wow, um, this is more complicated. <laughs> I think it's a reoccurring theme for me. Um, in my 20s, I was very black and white, you know? Mm -hmm in your 20s you can be black and white um if you were suffering a hardship it was probably your fault in some way um and having lived life and seen a few more things i'm now able to sort of appreciate that things are mostly gray and there's very few things that are black and white and um 
you know, the talking points don't always reflect that. The quick sound bites don't always really get um, to what the personal experience is. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, how it now? I know that you also have a Catholic background, and mm -hmm. I would have to imagine that that pro life to more of an open view of, of the life issue, uh, becoming pro-choice. Would you describe yourself as pro-choice or would you just? I struggle with that one. I hate, I need a third category for people that are like safe, rare. You, all right, we're done with it now. Like leave it alone. Um, I really, and, and it's a complicated issue, but I would only say I really approached this and, and where I changed on it was actually shortly after we moved to Washington, DC, we lived just south of the district in, in Virginia. Um, and so watching Virginia politics while we were out there, um, the legislature kept doing more, you know, one-upping each other on what they call trap laws, which are laws designed to put up barriers to abortion. So in theory, abortion is legal, but it's not really legal in practice. Mm -hmm. And to me, those things were so offensive. Um, my personal journey, um, I had a lot of fertility problems. It's funny to say now that I have three children, um, like, oh, she wouldn't have struggled. No, I mean, I had found out at 19 that I might not be able to have children. And we spent a lot of money getting those those kids. So um, I say this as someone who's a mom and everything else, but to me, yeah. I thought that's not fair to do to women. If they've made a decision, then you're basically just trying to torture them by doing some of the things that they were trying to do. And trap laws are really what moved me from squarely pro-life to more in the pro-choice category. Um, mm. Now, would I like to see less? You bet. Would I like to see more around education and more around um, contraceptives and just preventative measures? Absolutely. But unfortunately, a lot of the loudest pro-lifers are staunchly against sex ed in schools and access to birth control. So like, you're like, dudes, well, yeah. like, you know, come on. Yeah, I would, but, I'm with you, my, my, my stance, and we don't wanna to have to belabor this this topic too long, but sure. yeah, my stance on, on I, I still consider myself strongly pro-life, but I try to take a more holistic view of what it means of what life is, because I feel like the life conversation has just revolved around the womb, and that's yeah. it. And life and this is where i think democrats have kind of taken a bit of a may have a bit of an edge on the issue of life because they're advocates for better health care that's not to say republicans aren't either but they go about it in a different way that doesn't necessarily connect with everyone i think democrats have, have if, if we're talking about talking points they have right. they have the talking points um but when it comes down to mental health that is a life issue because they're still alive uh, prison reform um, end of life issues, uh, which my previous guest, which we, we did not get into this, but he has some very interesting views on end of life issues. Um, but I mean, it's heck, climate change in itself is a life issue because we're talking about the life of the planet that provides us with life. Right. And and so, it, if if I think if we approach the the concept of being pro life more holistically, we may be able to have a better conversation on what it means inside and outside the womb. But that's a podcast for another time. Right, no, and <laughs> if you ever decide to get into that, I'm I'm stunned, you know, I'm there. But I am glad to, that you brought up that more holistic approach because getting back to sort of the Catholicism angle, 
Um, mm -hmm. I am so excited to see that, you know, Pope Francis has taken up climate change as an issue, you know, of concern to the church and um, having that, you know, eventually trickle out. Um, it seems like things like that are always a little slow. We're always a few years behind when it's actually said and implemented. And I think we saw that here in the city of Indianapolis. Um, our archbishop is is sort of trying to clean house of the gays, which was more of a um, Pope Benedict kind of a thing um, yeah. and not reflective of where Pope Francis seems to be on that issue. Um, but these things sort of take time. You ramp up with doctrine and then it takes a, a minute to spread it across, you know, the globe. And yeah. then now, you've, you know, you've pivoted a little bit on it and that message and those, you know, that messaging just takes a little longer to get out. Um, so in any event. Well, tell me, you, you mentioned that you, you know, you were a corporate brat growing up, but you've also been sort of a corporate brat as an adult. <laughs> um, how has your, your, your crisscross country traveling, your, your work, I mean, because the, the, the thing that I love, you lived in two cities that I would just absolutely love to spend some time in, maybe as a visitor, maybe not as a long-term resident, but in Seattle and Austin, um, both fairly liberal cities especially Seattle, but they have a, just a tremendous music scene uh, in both cities. But Washington, D.C., compared to Wa Seattle, Washington, I have to imagine it's a bit of a culture shock. Uh, <laughs> even though Washington, D.C. Is, is fairly liberal, but still, I have to imagine that's, that's a bit of a culture shock. I remember, I, I think it was either you or Michael who told me that you, you haven't seen a liberal until you've been to Seattle, Washington. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's actually, it's, it's very funny to hear, especially our Midwestern friends describe mm -hmm. what they think this is. You don't know until you, you, you don't, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different beast altogether when you get out into places that are more isolated. Um, Seattle is a very isolated city. It's huge. But once you get beyond the boundaries of sort of population from Everett to Olympia, for those who are familiar with Washington State, you're in a lot of nothing for like five states. Oh, wow. um, it is an element unto itself. And there is a lot of group think that just perpetuates pushing that line further and further. Um, and it's just, a, there's just cultural differences. I had a friend tell me one time that there's just a different vibe when you get up with the sun on the East Coast versus when you watch the sunset on the West Coast. That hmm. intrinsic to the, the way that the population kind of thinks about things. It, and it, it, in my experience, that's true. That in DC and our more East Coast states, it's go, go, go. And you know time is money and let's do this on the West Coast, it took me a while to realize that my waiter had, they hadn't forgotten me. It's just, they weren't in a hurry, you know? Like, <laughs> where's the waiter, you know? And because that's just not there, you know, as my children would say, like, you know, don't don't mess with my vibe. Um, and so it's, <laughs> I think, how the moving across the country though affects me is consider this. People always talk about how travel broadens your mind, right? Mm -hmm. Moving yeah. is a whole nother level of that. Not just observing how people live when you go on vacation, but actually living 
their lives, living in that place, going to the grocery store, establishing, you know, at a church community, if that's your thing, putting your children in school. It's a different experience, you know, and America is a vast country. And there's about like seven different countries within America where you can kind of group people up by values and, and things like that. You know, no one could possibly have imagined, you know, 244 years ago, and I know that exactly because I'm a bicentennial baby, um, (laughs) that, like, we would be this big. And, you know, what you think in New York is different than, well, everybody thinks different than Florida, um, but California, (laughs) and that's different than Indiana and, you know, Mm -hmm. Colorado. and, And all of those experiences are valid based on what they have in front of them in their history. So I consider one thing I noticed um, when I got out, especially moving from Virginia, you know, D.C. to Seattle, the number of women in elective positions was staggering. It is not quite, you know, it's not 50-50, but it is pretty dang close. Um, Washington State, I think it's like 43% of the legislature is women. They have the only supermajority of women on their Supreme Court. Um, wow. The mayor of Seattle is a woman, and not only that, they had one in the 20s. They've had two women um, governors, and here's what I learned about that. This is my, so here, I'm going to suddenly whip out my political science, um, useful for nothing other than things like this. <laughs> when you think about how these things were settled, um, the ladies of the East Coast could wait over in London or France or wherever the heck they were coming from, and their men folk went first and created some shelter or whatever, and then they sent for the ladies, and they could, you know, enjoy tea or whatever it is they did in the 13th. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about, you know, women who are in a buggy and going across the country, it's not like they got to sit in that, you know, in those buggy things while the men just did the stuff. No, they were there as partners in partnership, mm-hmm. you know, building the houses, doing, you know, hunting, doing all of that kind of stuff. And so when you think about how our country was founded and what those women's experience was to get all the way out to Seattle, because I don't know if you have been there, but it's pretty freaking far um, versus the ones who, you know, were in the original 13 or even even yeah. to a certain extent the midwestern ones we noticed that um gender parity issues got a lot better as you head west and some of it is in how it was settled so it's it's different i don't think i would have picked that up if i hadn't moved there and seen it mm-hmm. that it's just so much more egalitarian in that regard you know i hadn't considered that but that makes so much sense that it would if you're making that kind of move either as, as, as a couple or as a family, and I'm guessing most of the time it was as a family, that the husband and wife really were a team, that, that the husband couldn't afford to see his wife as someone who was lesser than him, that she was a co-equal partner in that relationship for survival's sake. It doesn't and, mean like, we didn't have different responsibilities, but well, sure. that starting point yeah. is important. No, absolutely. That's just, but that's, yeah, I mean, I've seen plenty of Westerns, and this isn't something that's necessarily talked about, you know, as you see people right. moving, moving west. But that's, you may get a hint of it in the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, um, which my kids love reading. So, and I have four daughters, uh, not to outdo you, Holly, 
but you know that's that's yeah uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i think well, to sort of i guess to finish that thought is just when you move around as i have then mm -hmm. people aren't abstract concepts anymore they're not just the people on tv or in the news they're your neighbors um this yeah. coronavirus outbreak is a perfect example um, the nursing home where the majority of the deaths in Seattle have taken place was literally just a couple of miles up the road from our house. Oh man. So I have a friend who has tested positive for it. I mean, you know, these aren't abstract people on the news in a country far away or standing yeah. in an airport line or whatever. These are people when you put names and faces to things it's just different and having lived in so many places i can put a lot of names and a lot of faces and these stories aren't just abstract anymore those are real people yeah and you can't unsee that yeah no it's you, you really have been able to put forth a community there because of all the places you've been i mean you've been a lot of places but you've established that community so that it means it means more to you yeah. and so that's that's yeah, what I, I'm, I'm getting so far in some of these conversations is the importance of that, that community. Yes. Um, so tell me, what, what do you think has meant the most to you during your political journey? I think the ability to change um, my mind or to, to admit that I was wrong. I know that sounds funny that that would be the thing that meant the most to me, but um, really 2016 was a massively pivotal year for me I think I played around the edges of I wasn't feeling at home in the Republican Party but I you know all these yeah. years the worst thing you could ever call anyone was a Democrat like and I certainly could never say that about myself um, and self-identify that way and 16 made us really look at a lot of stuff for me um breaking free of the talking points. Um, it's conversations I had with friends all over the country where I had to really acknowledge what was a talking point and what was a fact. And what was my part in some of this having, you know, worked on campaigns. Um, in 2000, I worked on a Republican congressional campaign. Our mail guy who um, wrote a lot of our mail was also the guy who wrote um, mail for the, the guy who was running against Hillary Clinton when she was running in New York. And we would get, oh, really? yeah, it was, it oh. was so funny. So we'd get all these like sort of talking points about how Hillary Clinton would eat your baby, you know, in Northern <laughs> Indiana. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and I remember thinking like, you know, well, like, you know, I mean, he must know her or something, right? <laughs> like, you know, right. now yeah. looking like the Rush Limbaugh's of the world and all of that stuff, every, corner and I'm not here to advocate for Hillary Clinton because you know she didn't do herself any favors but at every corner there was nothing really backing up a lot of those accusations and yet we all talked about them as fact so what was our responsibility in proliferating this you know she's a crook or she's shady or whatever you know she, the woman has probably withstood more hearings than any person on the face of the earth and you know never been you know found guilty of something so what why is that that we all still didn't trust and didn't feel comfortable with her and really taking a look at my own biases and trying to mm -hmm. peel back well, why do i feel that way about her why do i think this about you know kind of the clinton machine and and whatnot was really enlightening for me 
to sort of break through some of the myths that I had been perpetuating. That I, I think I started talking by saying like the pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of myth. If you have yeah. no bootstraps, it's really freaking hard to pull yourself up. <laughs> and yeah. really being confronted with what's my obligation to my fellow man in some of these things to really consider what's fact and what's a talking point. So for me, I think it was a very big blessing to find out maybe I was wrong in the way that I thought about things. I'll say this, the, the Holly that I first got to know was, uh, I don't think this has changed about you, very opinionated. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you, and you were confident, and you were confident, but, you know, like, like you said, you were, if you were presented with enough information, you could change your mind. Um, and I think you always... You, you led with that with with the Indiana Leadership Forum that again you know we have this information we think we're right but here's other information you need to know or you need to hear and then continue to make your your thought processes go does it continue to lead you down the path you're going or does it change does it challenge what's your your prevailing thought right. and I, my, my prevailing thoughts have been cha challenged a lot over the last decade um, 2016 was probably also a pivotal point, but um, I think there was a lot leading up to that. But you've been fairly, as as we've been talk, talking this whole time, I mean, it's been pretty well established that you are well-connected uh, within GOP political circles. Have your interactions changed much as you've changed? It's interesting to see you separate people out. People have become more colorful and have so much more dimension um, as I've changed. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very easy to go like, these are my GOP friends or these are my Democrat friends. And I've always maintained yeah. a pretty robust circle. So, um, but you I will say actually. my situation is a little different than probably people who stayed in the same spot. Um, yeah. All of my, a lot of my personal epiphanies happened away from the people I'm near now. Like I'm returning to the same circles and I'm different and they didn't get to go on that journey with me and I didn't get to go on their journey. I don't know how all of my moderate Republican friends became diehard Trumpers. Um, part of me thinks it might've been interesting to see how they reconciled that, um, but they didn't get to see you know, how I've evolved and changed. And we're probably, yeah. it's interesting, moving back to a place, in my opinion, and I, honestly, I'm gonna go ahead and call rank on this one. I think my opinion <laughs> is probably the prevailing one um, in terms of experience. Moving back to a place is actually, I think, harder than moving to a place new. Mm -hmm. Because we know everyone in this town, yeah. but we left 10 years ago. And as they should, people moved on and fill the space that we might have used to have dinner with them or go to lunch or, or the movies or whatever it is you do. I was a massive hostess when I was living in Indianapolis previously through parties all over the place. Um, coming back now, I'm just in a slightly different place. And it's interesting to see who's invited us out and who hasn't. Um, a lot of catch-up coffees. Um, 
but then, you know, you haven't worked your way back into people's social circles. So it's very yeah. interesting. Um, and with the advent of social media, that adds a layer of complexity. I think there are, there's a few people who walked past me as though they saw me last week, like, oh, hey, Holly. And they don't realize, no, like, let's take a minute. It's been 10 years, but they yeah. just saw a tweet or they just saw a Facebook post and they don't realize like, no, I haven't been here. Um, so that's kind of interesting, but certainly um, it, it is interesting how um, with my background, with the Luger series, with the Indiana Leadership Forum in particular, Mm -hmm. um, having had such an impact, especially on the Indiana Leadership Forum, it would not be here without me. And I don't say that mm -hmm. in a braggadocious oh, no. way. It's a fact. It's an absolute fact. Um, it's an absolute fact. I've struggled a lot. I went to the annual um, event this summer and I sat there and I thought, um, wow, is my legacy for this just being forgotten? Um, and really, really struggled. It's become more partisan, which is interesting because it's a 501c3. So we were always able to sort of skirt that line. But again, we try to do it in a balanced way. It mm -hmm. seems overtly partisan now, but it's not as though they've asked me to come back and speak. And I find it, sometimes I do struggle with the fact that I'm asked to speak nationally, yeah. uh, but I'm not asked to speak <laughs> at the program yeah. that I created. Um, so that's, you know, I have my own little struggles sometimes. And then of course I'll be reminded that like, you know, I've moved on in a different way. Um, and maybe it's just as well to just shut that chapter of my life. Well, I, I can, I can, I know what you're talking about there. Um, I haven't moved, but my views have changed along the lines. And my, I noticed that I have either because of it or just as a result of it, you know, you start drifting from certain people from certain circles and it just kind of, kind of happens. And the one thing that I found in politics, because someone told this to me, um, but I think it, it's true. It's that in politics, you're always replaceable. And that was kind of a hard truth to accept initially. Um, but once you do accept that, it's actually kind of somewhat freeing because then you're no longer bound by what you may or may not, you know, what, what you may not believe. You may say that you do because you're part of a party, but you may not actually truly believe it. Like you may take a nuanced view that people in the party may be like, Oh no, you can't, you, you can't do that. But now you can. And so actually I love that you said that because then you were, you bore witness to probably the greatest failure of my life, which was losing slating. Mm -hmm. And it was also Sadly, yeah, yeah. the most freeing moment of my life in disguise. And I, you know, I can say that now looking backwards, but I will tell you this prior to running for office, I towed the line. I ignored things that shouldn't have been ignored. I maybe didn't say quite as much. I wasn't quite as mouthy, uh, if you can believe that. I had great Republican hair. Um, it was you wonderful. Did. And when I, I lost, and especially the year of slating, um, um, for those who may be listening, they might not realize slating's been done in a, a bunch of different incarnations in the city of Indianapolis. The year that I went through slating, it was done in mass. So standing in front of a thousand people making a case and all of them watching me lose and hearing that sort of audible gasp when people went, wait, what, she just lost? Um, yeah. I couldn't hide. Literally everyone I knew was in that room and saw what happened. And to come back into the daylight after that, 
it was incredibly freeing to go, the worst thing happened to me in front of everyone I know, and yet I'm still here. And you know what? I had played by the rules and it got me to that place. I'm now going to do what I want. And so for me, that was a big moment. I, I take a lot of lessons from failure, you may have noticed, right? Um, in that checking is. myself, yep. try to stay humble. Um, nobody's uh, more self-depreciating than me, but um, it's one of those things where when the worst possible thing has happened to you, in some ways, it's incredibly freeing to just go, all right, let's do this. You know, I might as well be true to myself. Mm -hmm. Well, Holly, I have really appreciated the time that we've had to talk about all this. Your journey has been incredible. I've learned some things about you during this conversation that I never knew. Um, and, you know, for that, I feel like we're a little bit closer. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, it's been, it's been really good to hear, you know, your side of things, your, your story. And I, and I hope that we hear more stories like that. Um, however, as I say repeatedly on, on my website and as I, as I try to promote the show, with every good road trip, there is a playlist. And so when you look back on your journey, your road trip, what songs come to mind to you that you think would define your journey? So I am absolutely convinced that in a prior life, I was a backup singer at Motown. Um, <laughs> like the Motown soundtrack, Hitsville, USA, I am all in, but I actually look back now and wonder how it is I became a Republican because all of my musical influences were all the protest move, you know, music of the late sixties and early seventies. I am all mm -hmm. in on Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, any incarnation of them. Um, songs like, I mean, when they sang about what mattered, um, to me, that was music at its finest, reflecting back society and reflecting back what was important. So that's the music that I really look to, um, you know, for inspiration a lot more than sort of just, you know, boy meets girl, you know, girl yeah. and boy kind of songs. The songs yeah. where they really reflected um, society. And, and unfortunately, sometimes the best of that comes when society's at its worst when we hit recessions we get great music like the early 90s um like like you can't it's almost as though the economy is so bad that only the really best musicians get to stay in the music business and everybody else and has to go me hope you're yeah but no, I mean, so, you know, songs like, uh, you know, Ohio or Woodstock, you know, from Crosby, yeah. Stills and, you know, Nash, you know, those are songs that are just amazing. You know, Dylan was was great at reflecting back, you know, what he saw as well, oh, yeah. you know, all of those things. So for me, um, and of course, the music of Motown, I think, is really important to me. I didn't grow up with grandparents, really, and um, I had a, an interaction with uh, my biological grandfather, whereby he gave me his old Motown records. And so oh. that was my first exposure at a young age to that music and growing up and then hearing the stories behind it. and. Uh -huh. That whole history of Motown, I highly recommend if you like documentaries, Standing in the Shadow of yeah. Motown is a great documentary about um, the Funk Brothers who were the house band um, there at Motown Studios. 
Um, I'm writing this down right now. Yeah, no, that's a great one. I mean, just the history behind those stories and how that music got made and so many hits. I mean, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's incredible, especially when you put them in their historical context of what was happening at the time. So for me, and then just for funsies, I like to throw in the random like Kanye West or something. My, I am... I am vicious when it comes to, you know, rap and gangster rap in particular of like the early 90s. I'm, I'm all in and there. Um, we could go karaoke later. Um, it would be great. <laughs> Do you ever rap in front of your girls? Um, yes. And they're like, please stop doing that. Um, I am you know, a big We're trying to of- educate our kids here and I get the same response. I mean... Yeah, no, I, I am especially down for like uh, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg's You're Nothing But a G Thing is like my go-to karaoke. And they're like, oh my God, mom, I rock a minivan so hard, you don't even know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, well, everyone just got an idea of what this week's playlist for this podcast will sound like. It's going to be fun. It's going to be rocking. Holly, thank you for being on this week's show. I really appreciate you being a part of it. Thank you for having me. This is a fun uh, reintroduction back to Indiana again. <laughs> right, right. Back into podcasting. Yeah. Ah, so uh, thanks for everyone for listening tonight. If you're watching this online on YouTube, be sure to subscribe and mash that little bell so you can get a notification every time I upload a new video. And be sure to like the video. Uh, if you're listening just by, you know, our regular podcast. Uh, Be sure to give this podcast five stars and a thumbs up, however you do that on iTunes and Apple and Spotify and all the places that you can listen to The Political Nomad with Josh Gillespie. I am The Political Nomad, and so is Holly. And so are all (laughs) my guests on this show. We're all political nomads. We're all nomads together. And uh, thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week. 